At this chapter in Mark, we come back to our storyline in the Gospel of Mark, and we're, we're coming across a story that's included in all four Gospels. Rarely happens. You have the synoptics with the three stories that are similar and the outlier John, but today we have the feeding of the 5,000, which of course is a very familiar story. In fact, one of the problems with the story is we know it too well. And so when we open this, we go, yeah, I know about the feeding of 5,000, and uh, kind of get on with the story. So I want to pray for us as we look at this text this morning that it might be a new, refreshing, and renewing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the vitality of the men and women who come here, for those in the Learning Center who are ministering to so many little children, helping them understand who this Jesus is. We pray for our Nashville campus, for our Franklin campus, and for those watching live stream right now that this will be a time to focus in on you and your word as we've worshiped you in song, as we've given, as we pray. Uh, help us now to turn, on the, turn down the noise of the distraction of our lives and focus on you and your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, every one of us comes to a situation in life where we don't feel quite sufficient. When you get married, you probably don't feel sufficient as a husband or a wife. You kind of figure things out. And during the course of your marriage, you're going to ask yourself a thousand times, am I sufficient as a husband? Am I sufficient as a wife? Uh, when you have children, you are going to question your very salvation. <laughs> Raising children, going, what am I doing to these poor people that God has entrusted me into my home? You're going to ruin their lives. You're going to destroy them. You've got to have the right stroller. You got to have the right vehicle, the right shoes, the right school, the right books, the right toys. You can't just buy blocks anymore. They might get a splinter. You've got to have a neuroplastic toy that teaches them things that no one ever knew about before. And you over-obsess as a parent trying to raise these little boys and girls. As a single man or woman, you approach life with a number of questions. How do I do this alone? How do I do it as a single man or woman? I don't want to be single. I want to be single. And all the points in between. Am I sufficient as a physician? Am I sufficient as a mom? Am I sufficient as a dad? Am I sufficient as a teacher, as an engineer, as an artist, a musician, a writer? Do I have what it takes to do this thing? And when we succeed, we feel good about it. It's great. But we always come to that cusp again, don't we? Where we wonder, do I have what it takes do I have enough to provide for this situation? I well remember the high school and college years always feeling stupid compared to somebody else, right? There was always that one person that just ruined the curve. We all love to hate them. We didn't say it out loud, but the, the smarty pants person that knew everything, that always made A's and 4.0 and took AP courses. And, and I understand now you can actually have like a five-point GPA. Is that right? That's just wrong. That's just wrong. I'm sorry. But the people are that smart and talented and capable. And so then you, you're in a group with them. We'll just do the project. I'll just ride along. You know, Why should I try? We have all these inadequacies and, and insecurities and wonder, do we have what it takes to provide for the situation? Perhaps at a great level, that's what this story is about in the Gospel of Mark, the feeding of the 5,000. Before we look at the text to the story proper about the feeding of 5,000, we want to look at this hinge passage that Carl was so kind to read for us in verses 30, 31, and 32. Now let's talk about the Mark and Sandwich again. In chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus sent them out to preach, to heal, to teach, to anoint. 
And then we have this long story about John the Baptist. And then that's a pericope. That's a story with this sandwich, this book in. And so we're kind of left in suspense. What's going on when he sent them out? And then in chapter 6, verse 30, when the apostles gathered together with Jesus. The story then comes back in the market sandwich. We're now back, back at the ranch. Meantime, we picked up the story, and now the apostles are gathering, and they're telling, reporting to Christ all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Don't miss that. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Interesting, this is the only gospel record of this. Mark says, take time, take a rest. So before we look at the main story, let me just encourage you type A's, workaholics, uh, those who get up early and stay up late doing your world, it's okay to take a break. Now, let's differentiate between leisure and rest. Turning off social media, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, and binge-watching Netflix is not what I have in mind. <laughs> That's leisure. That's not rest. Rest is time with Him. Rest is a restorative thing where you are alone with God's Word, you're praying, and notice this is a secluded place. Twice the text, Mark says, to a secluded place. They got into a boat to a secluded place that can mean desolate or isolated. So in the morning when I get up, when Cindy gets up, we do not turn on the Bible software technology because if I turn on the technology, I'm lost. I'm gone. I'm, I love the technology. I love it. But if I turn it on, this goes away. And that to me is, is a good illustration of secluded isolated, away from. I'm ADD before they even knew what that was. And so I face a wall in all my offices, at home as well as at work. I don't face the window. If I face the window, it's squirrel and bird, you know. I can't stay on track. I face a wall because I've got to compartmentalize. This is what I have in front of me. It's a new year. It's a great time to start new habits. Do you think you're more efficient not spending time with God than spending time with Him? This is not something you should do or you're supposed to do or you ought to do. It's something you can do. It's something that's an opportunity for you. I would argue you're more efficient, you're more productive, you're more balanced in every way when you spend time with your Savior than when you do not because you're always running on fumes. They've come off this busy time. They're telling Jesus all the stories, and he says to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place. That word might just be all that some of you need to hear today. I would also submit that when you do this every morning, not because you have to, but because you can, not because you should, because you get to, not because you're supposed to, but because you want to, that over time you'll wonder why you haven't done it always. Maturity is turning discipline into reflex. And once it becomes a reflex that you get up and you take your coffee or whatever it is you need in the morning to get going and you open that Bible and journal and you read and you pray and you just are isolated with God's Word and God's Spirit by yourself. You'll never waste time 
doing that. Well, that's the hinge of the story. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, as we read it, depending on our perspective, verse 33, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot. So we're running now across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. This is the area called Bethsaida, Bethsaida on the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to Israel or looked at uh, mosaics or archaeology, there's a famous church in Tagbah, T-A-G-B-H, that has the loaves and fishes. It's a very iconic mosaic. You'll see it on coffee mugs and plates and pictures everywhere. That's in a different part of the, uh, the area. It's probably the wrong location, I would argue. But what's important about that Byzantine ta- mosaic is it's first century. So the story was real enough that when those early Christians built that church, they said, let's put a mosaic in the floor of the loaves and the fish to commemorate the multiplication that occurred here. Well, the crowd returns and Christ is going to react to them. Look again at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Mark is the only one that records Christ's motivation of compassion. Mark says when he saw the masses of people, he wasn't like, oy vey, we can't get away. (laughs) He felt compassion. Now don't miss the hinge in verse 31 where they didn't have time to eat. This sets up the tension in Mark's movement of the narrative. They're hungry, the disciples I'm talking about. And now Jesus is going to spend all day long until early evening, late afternoon, teaching these people because he cared, because he had compassion on them. He began to teach them many things because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Just as a sidebar, uh, to be compared to a sheep is not a good thing. It's nice that Christ calls us out of compassion, but to be referred to as a sheep is a stinky, smelly, defenseless, pretty stupid animal. Technically speaking, I'd rather be called a chicken than a sheep because chickens are actually quite smart creatures. They're, they're, they actually can defend for themselves. They actually do a pretty good job as what they do as a chicken. So you, you think a chicken would be stupid. Sheep are stupid. When your sons and daughters, when they're little, are gluing little white cotton things on, on, on the construction paper over here, it should be muddy, dirty, smelly cotton. It shouldn't be white. They've never been white except in some painting. If you were to see them in Israel or in the Bedouin villages, when they come, it's, it, you've been around, not to be too specific on a, before lunch, you've been around a slaughterhouse? Think of the odor of the animals coming in before they're processed. That's what it's like watching a herd of sheep. You can smell them when they're coming. And they're defenseless. And when they get overladen with wool, they're even more trouble. And they're stupid. They wander off. They don't follow the game trail like most animals do. So it's a good thing he has compassion on us. But notice what he does with this compassion. He teaches them many things. Now, most of your Bibles say he taught them many things, verse 34. More accurately, he taught them at length. He taught them for a long time. And this again builds the tension in Mark's record. J.D. Jones writes, Grip with compassion, an illustration of the wonderful love that never saw its own. 
but always forgot its own needs and worries and sorrows in sympathy and care for the burdens and the sorrows of others. Christ not only knows his disciples' needs and his own need, he saw compassion. He had compassion on all these people that ran across to see them. Luke tells us he taught them of the kingdom of God. Mark makes no mention of what he taught at length. We're left in suspense. We look at the greater body, the greater corpus of Jesus teaching to the multitudes. But here we're not meant to focus in on what he taught. We're focusing in on the fact that he taught and as it was an action of his compassion. Um, the greatest need for these people is teaching. That's what the shepherd does. He's going to instruct them. Well, it's getting late, verse 35, when it was already quite late. His disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away that we may go into the surrounding, they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The account is, again, hinged. They're probably still hungry. They've watched Jesus work all day. Have you ever watched somebody work all day, but you're not working yourself? If you, if you were trained in medicine and you watch the primary work all day and you're standing there, it's exhausting watching someone else do something all day long. Depending on how you were trained, you might have been around someone else that's doing all the work and you're just there. Think of the 12 disciples just watching Christ work the crowd, so to speak, teaching them. They're tired. They've been out doing what Christ told them to do. Now they're sidelined. They're hungry. And this crowd has crushed what they thought was going to be an isolated time and a nice meal. And now they're looking at their watch, metaphorically speaking. It's late. It's about three in the afternoon. Food preparation in the ancient world is quite different. We live by the microwave and takeout. Uh, in, my, in my home, Cindy and I, we, we kind of gauge food by if it's 30 minutes or so to prepare, we're in. Otherwise, it's a major undertaking to cook a meal, right? If you've got to spend an hour and a half, two hours, if you've got to plan the night before and marinate and do something, that's a big decision. Like, well, I don't know if we want to do that. I mean, this is a 20, 30-minute world. That's why restaurants are so stinking popular because I, don't, I can go there it's provided lovely for me. I don't have to wash dishes. I can write a check. I pay a little bit more, obviously, than if I ate at home, but I'm lazy. In the first century, meal preparation took hours. If you've not been to a developing country, uh, it's a good trip just to see how food is prepared in a developing country. It takes hours to make a meal. And that meal isn't a full-course meal. That's a staple, probably, some type of dried vegetable, and maybe a little bit of meat but it took a long time to prepare it. So now we've got all these people. They're hungry, and it's getting late, and the disciples want them to go away, and they tell Jesus, hey, Lord, it's getting kind of late. Send these people away. Christ's command to them is stands up straight and tall. Verse 37, but he answered, you give them something to eat. This is a plural imperative verb. You feed them which would set them on their heels. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread to give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. Now let's get the sense of what's happening here. I don't like the conversions of what a denarii was in the antiquity and what it would be today. Let's just round it off. A denarii was a day's wage. Now 
How are we going to measure that? I'll leave it up to those of you that worry about such things. This is about eight months' salary of a person in that setting. So think of your or my salary saying, gosh, if, we went, if I had all the money that I earned in eight months and I went to the villages, that wouldn't be enough to buy bread for all these people. Obviously, they don't have those kind of resources, but that's the way their mind is working. And Christ's command is quite strident. You feed them. How are we going to feed them? Go look. Both of these commands are imperative. And it would strike them probably amazed, but also a little bit fearful and frustrated. How are we going to do this? We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't have any way to feed all these people. You want us to feed them? The words go look are instructive. Go look, see what you got. Well, we can't envision them looking in the pockets and the pouches of their money bags. Like, I got nothing. They've just come off an experience where they probably had nothing with them. Go look and see what the people have, is the admonition. And of course, we know the story too well. They come back with five loaves of bread, verse 38, and two fish. And he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat out in groups of hundreds and fifties. The language here is quite romantic. Um, green grass is a little hint from Mark. This has got to be spring to early summer because the rest of the year, it ain't green. It's brown. We also have this interesting, remember a few weeks ago, Lloyd talked about the familial part of a meal. We're seeing it here richly. This language isn't just count them out in groups. It's like family associations. The people you came with. The households that you're part of, you and your children, you gather in groups together so that we can distribute the food and the idea of reclining is at hand. Have them lay down on the grass. Have them relax on the lawn, we might say. Think of the party on the lawn when you came with family and friends or your community group or some people you know or you whatever. You say, let's eat our meal together. That's what's happening here. And it also helps them, the little hint is, 150s tells us, hey, they can count them easily when the story finishes, which we'll see in verse 44. Verse 41, he took the loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed. Now, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible, the words, the food are in italics, just as a little, little oh, by the way, whenever, if you use the New American Standard, whenever they have an italics, a word or phrase in italics, that word, that phrase is not in the original language. They're giving it there as a gloss to smooth the reading. It's an interpretation. It's an injection. If you use an NIV, ESV, Holman, you're on your own. None of those will tell you the hint. That's one of the many reasons I prefer the NASB. So why is that important here and why do I belabor it here? Notice what he says. He took, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. He didn't bless the food. The food is not in the original. He blessed and broke the loaves. We get this picture of Jesus, you know, this is the gesture, just as an illustration, blessing the loaves, and all of a sudden they're multiplying. He doesn't bless the bread. He blesses God. Think about this next time you pray over a meal. We often bless the food. Who's going to say grace? Who's going to bless the meal? Now, that's not bad or horrible or you know, wrong theologically. But what's happening here is he's blessing God. Mark 14, 22, while they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread after a blessing, broke it. He doesn't bless the bread and multiply it around the table for the disciples. He's blessing God. 
The word bless here is eulogeo. Remember we've talked about eulogy and eucharist and euphonium and euphemism, good words. So here the idea of eulogy is to, to speak well of. Is Jesus speaking well of the loaves and fish? Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. The verbs in the passage also lend this. Blessed, broke, kept giving, and divided. Very interesting in Mark's arrangement. He blesses God, then he breaks it, and then he keeps on giving. It's an ongoing activity. He kept giving, and then he divided the fish. Now, we're not told how the miracle occurred. The only hint we have is he kept on giving. So, in your uh, sanctified imagination and or mine, I don't know what's going on, but the sack lunch is brought to him, flat bread probably, probably round flat bread, probably a stack, no more than that. And he starts breaking it and handing it to the disciples, and it just keeps supplying itself. I don't know. That's the miracle we're not given privy on the supernatural, above nature aspect of this miracle. More than enough resources, the story tells us at the end there were 12 baskets. And of course, we all know it's too, it's too easy, it's low, it's low pickings, right? 12 disciples, they all got a basket. Where are we going to find all the, where are we going to go? 200 in there, where are we going to go? And at the end of it, they're all standing there. You see, see, can you see a picture? I'm going look at, where did this come from? Now, liberals and those who don't believe the miracle tell two primary stories. One that when they saw the person, the little boy is typically how it's depicted, who brought his sack lunch to Jesus, they all sort of, you know, coughed up what they were hiding, right? And so there was plenty of food. That's one possible interpretation. The other one is, because of the generosity of this lad, in their, in their view, then uh, what happened was that people just passed on it. I'm not going to eat. And they gave what they had to others. And everybody said, well, I'm not going to eat either. I won't eat either. Because, I mean, they sacrificed after all. And so at the end, you had 12 basketballs. Now, people that hold this view have never been to a wedding buffet. <laughs> They've never gone to a place where there's free food and hungry bellies. Because I promise you, nobody is that altruistic when they're hungry. They're hungry. How many wedding dinners have you gone to? And if you've, like me, talked to people and let others go through it, when you get there... All that's left is like cold broccoli and some squash. All the good stuff's gone, right? All that's left is the leftovers. What's left here are 12 full baskets of leftovers. To illustrate to them, they didn't have the provision, but he did. He broke, he kept giving. He blessed, he broke, he kept giving, and he distributed the fish as well. There were, verse 44, 5,000 men. Matthew chapter 14 notes, besides women and children. This is not politically incorrect. It's not chauvinistic. It's not unkind. It's antiquity. You counted households by the male, the head of the household. So when you count 5,000 men, you're saying 5,000 men. Conservative estimates, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people. It wasn't just 5,000 people who ate. North of 10,000 conservatively ate. Add to that, you have a widow she becomes part of her brother-in-law, her brother's family. You have distant relatives. You have an older parent, a single, your mom, your, your dad's died. She's part of your family system. You got some kids and grandkids. You're sitting in groups. So we get very quickly north of 10,000 or more. Does it really matter if there are 5,000 or 50,000? 
What matters is there was more left over and everybody was full. That's the point of the miracle. It doesn't matter how many heads you're going to count. Mark gives us the insight just as the detail, which, by the way, all the Gospels also mention. Three so what's from this message, this passage, I should say. Number one, perhaps the major so what is Christ cares for the sheep. Christ has compassion on people. We know it, we've heard it, but maybe we need reminding. There are needy people that always need. Some of you in law and medicine, some of you in your world as teachers, there are certain people that come into your world, a phone call, an email, and you just kind of cringe. You go, oh, it's that person again. Oh, it, it's Michael again. Oh, you know, no matter what I do, it's never enough. Anybody have those people in their life besides me? None of you, of course, but in theory, anybody know those kind of people? You just can't ever help them enough. This is a pretty good admonition where Christ has compassion on people with needs. It does not say we get into borders and boundaries and all these things that we've learned that are sophisticated, fine, well, and good. It doesn't say we write checks endlessly and try to help people that can't be helped. What it says is he had compassion in the form of shepherding and teaching. We're going to see in a second. So it's a good reminder for all of us that I'm glad he cared about me. Are you glad he cared about you? And as we look upon the multitudes of people, that some who we don't like, some who make us angry, some who maybe hate us, some who maybe seems like their life is just always a problem and they're always sad, can you and I have a bit of Christ's compassion toward them? Can we see them as sheep? who are defenseless, who are hurting, who need help. It seems to be the mark of the believer. It doesn't mean that we let needy people control our lives. It does mean that we could grow some compassion toward those who have needs. Which leads to the second so what, that shepherding is inseparable from teaching. Jesus didn't write checks. He taught them. He taught them at length. He taught them a lot. How do you help a person who has a lot of needs? Well, you teach them. If you go to a counselor, psychologist, psychotherapist, if you go into treatment, a social you go to a physician, you go to a teacher who's tutoring you, they are, they're helping you learn something. You want to learn to play an instrument better. You want to be a better engineer, a better artist, a better fill-in-the-blank, because you feel those insecurities. You go to someone who knows more than you do, and they shepherd you. They teach you. If you're in the learning center, if you work with students in student ministries, if you teach a Bible study, community Bible study, BSF, a precept, if you are teaching others, if you're opening this book around friends in a group, um, here, here's the cool part. Teachers will never be out of work because people always need to learn. And you know if you're a teacher that in teaching you learn from those you teach as much, if not more, than you're teaching them. Shepherding is inseparable from teaching. It's not just writing checks and enabling people. It's teaching them, helping them in their need. And Christ taught at length. Now we've got to teach differently than maybe the way we were taught. That changes. That's always a moving target in how we learn to teach. But shepherding is inseparable from teaching. Then third and last, so what? Christ 
never lacks resources, even though we do. They came to him with a need that was overwhelming. How are we going to feed all these people? You feed them. Go look what you got. And then implication, bring it back to me and let me deal with it. We never lack resources. Our spiritual life always feels inadequate. Our professional life, unless you are really, um, to be kind, a really proud individual, uh, you have inadequacies. And you face situations where people are smarter and wealthier and more successful and better and more accomplished. I had a friend I used to play racquetball with years ago back in, in D.C., Virginia, and uh, he played trumpet. And there was another guy, I've told this story many times before, that also played trumpet in the orchestra. And the guy never missed a note. He was just a brilliant trumpet player. And if you know anything about brass, it's the most unforgiving instrument. If you make a mistake, everybody knows it. You know, violins are cool. You can make lots of mistakes. No one hears the strings. You're playing brass, we all hear it. And this guy, I gave him the nickname Charlie Cleanhead, he never missed a note. And my friend who played the trumpet in the orchestra would say, whenever I hear Charlie play the trumpet, I'm going to go home and turn mine into a lamp. <laughs> because the guy was so good at what he did. You know what? We can feel inadequate. And that's the danger of comparison. You've been given gifts, skills, strengths, abilities, talents, natural inclinations. That's how God's wired you. You and I don't have all that we need to do everything. In fact, we got nothing to accomplish what we need. He does. He has everything you need. So <laughs> you and I parent our kids. And, you know, let's just admit it. Those of us whose kids are older, we know we've jacked up our kids. We've repented of it. We just pray for them now. <laughs> I mean, we just cop out and go, they're free agents. It's not my problem. Did my best. I mean, we love them, but at some point they become their own. Think about it from their perspective. They're in school with kids that are smarter and more athletic and prettier and skinnier and stronger and all the other things. And they feel inadequate too. There's always some kid that's better at you than you. You don't believe me? Why do you go to college? You can be the single best athlete or student in a local high school. You go to college, you're one of a thousand. You'd be the best guy on the team, best girl on the team. You go for a, a, a regional tryout, a regional game, you're nothing, right? We never have enough. Where do we get this delusion we'll ever be enough? Don't be discouraged. Because in Christ, you got all you need. I have this picture in my head. Could be wrong. We live this Christian life, and we step across this threshold called death. We're not going from the land of living to the land of dying. We're going from the land of the dying to the land of living, right? Now, we fear it. We don't want to. We don't like the notion. But just stay with me a minute. We're going from the land of dying to the land of living. When you cross that threshold, in my sanctified imagination, there's going to be a basket right there full of all the inadequacies you carried all your life as a reminder. He's got it all under control. Why do you and I live in fear? Why do we live in inadequacy? Why do we feel insufficient? Why do we feel inferior? Why do we feel not as smart, not as pretty, not as strong, not as talented? Because we're trying to do it ourselves. 
You go feed them. I ain't got nothing. I can't feed 5,000, 10,000 people. That's right. That's the point. I'm God. You're not. You know what's striking is in a few pages, they'll forget the story. We have this romantic notion that if we walk where Jesus walked and we're around and we were disciples, we'd be all the way to the cross with Jesus. No, we wouldn't. We'd be just like the disciples. We'd run for cover. We'd deny him at the end, just like they would. They're no, they aren't superheroes, nor are you or me. We'd have eaten the fruit just like Adam and Eve. The point of the story is he's the bread of life. What does he tell us later? I have food you know not of. And we scrounge for food, we scrounge for sustenance, we scrounge for importance, for meaning, for success in life, for acquisition, for these goals that are fine and good part of our, it's a good part of our stewardship of the resource he's given us. We know that. I'm not disparaging that. I'm not saying be lazy. But I'm trying to absolve you and me of this notion that I'm not good enough. That you're not good enough. Because Truthfully, we're not good enough. But more importantly, in Christ, we're more than good enough. We're all that he wants us to be. When you step across that line, the old song, the things of the earth will go strangely dim. We need a new, some of you songwriters need to revamp that song. You cross the threshold, it's not going to be strangely dim. It's gone. No tear, no crying. No loss, no sadness. We live like paupers when we're wealthy. Some of you were at the Passion Conference, and a couple of people sent me this quote from Beth Moore that took a life of its own. You will watch a generation of Christians, of Christians, she said, set aside the Bible in an attempt to become more like Jesus. Stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will be perhaps the cleverest of all of the devil's scheme in your generation. Sacrifice truth for love's sake, and you will rise or fall based on whether you will sacrifice one for the other. Will you have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love? That's gold. Will you have the faith to say, he's sufficient. God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. That's the mooring. And I got all I need. And you got all you need to be the man, the husband, the woman, the wife, the mom, the single, the doctor, the artist, the engineer, the teacher, the trainer that he wants you to be. When you leave today, think of a big basket that you're carrying out this door of all the provisions you're ever going to need, overflowing. And that's how we're supposed to live this life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. In a world that denigrates truth and dismisses you, remind us often, you're God, we're not. Empower us to to be courageous, to love you, to smile at the future, not to live in fear or inadequacy, but to know that you provide all that we need and so much more. In Christ's name, amen.